This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to a new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Book Network. I'm your host, Sher Ali Tareen. For each new episode, we choose an important new book in the broader field of Islamic studies and we chat with its author. Athar Ziaz, Resisting Disappearance, Military Occupation and Women's Activism, is a brilliant, bold and urgent ethnography centered on Kashmiri women of the APDP, Association of the Parents of the Disappeared Persons. By combining meticulous historical analysis, ethnographic intimacy, and profound attention to the aspirations and tragedies of everyday life, Zia documents the discursive mechanisms and affective registers through which women of the APDP deploy and enact mourning as a politics of resisting the settler colonial regime of India in Indian-occupied Kashmir, especially its ghastly enforced disappearance of over 10,000 Kashmiris. Lyrically written, this book details and navigates the fascinating as well as courageous strategies of resistance mobilized by members of the APDP, while also sketching a vivid and at times harrowing picture of Indian state brutalities and conditions of colonial rule that Kashmiris, including women of the APDP, must constantly contend and negotiate. The strength of this book lies in the way it moves seamlessly between crafting intimate individual portraits of resistance and describing the broader terrain of colonial occupation that informs, shapes and limits the arc and practice of resistance. In our conversation, we touched on a range of themes, including affective law, and its challenge to modern state sovereignty, gendered choreographies of resistance, military humanitarianism and its insidious operations, archive fever and the politics of mourning, and the interaction of poetry and ethnography. This theoretically sophisticated and politically powerful book marks a groundbreaking moment in the anthropological study of Kashmir and South Asia that will also make an excellent text in undergraduate and graduate seminars on various themes and topics. Here now is my conversation with Professor Athar Zia. Hello, Athar, how are you doing? I'm well, thank you. Uh, Thank you so much, Athar, for uh, for your time. As I was saying before, we sort of started uh, recording our conversation. Uh, This was such a powerful, uh, uh, incredible 
uh, rich book that I'm sure will not only spark many conversations, but it's, it's also really timely and urgent in so many ways. So uh, thank you for this book. We have a tradition on the New Books Network, Athar, that our first question is always biographical. Uh, could you share a bit with our listeners uh, how you became a scholar of anthropology of uh, Kashmir and South Asia and how you got to write this particular book? Uh, thank you so much for inviting me on this show. And I'm, I'm, I'm clearly uh, touched because uh, this is you, you're one of the first readers of the book. And it, it's very heartening to know that uh, you find the book timely, you find the book urgent. And I think that also says something about my intellectual journey. I before this before being an anthropologist, so I was a journalist, <clears throat> and for a very brief time, I was also uh, in the Kashmir government as a bureaucrat, as a civil servant, and uh, you know, as a Kashmiri, what I had noticed, even as a journalist, I had noticed that Kashmiri narratives are missing. I felt like people are talking about Kashmir, uh, but. Uh, no one is really a Kashmiri who is talking about Kashmir, uh, not inside Kashmir. Kashmiris have been writing all along. But outside Kashmir, there were very less narratives. We had researchers, filmmakers, scholars coming into Kashmir and asking Kashmiris about their situation. And Kashmiris had been writing in Urdu and English. But uh, what I needed at that time was uh, a resonance of Kashmiri narrative for myself, first and foremost. Uh, that was able to kind of connect to the world community, that was uh, able to connect to uh, the scholarship that was essentially coming from West because, you know, this is where uh, a lot of narratives are formed and then they kind of travel everywhere globally. So I felt like I needed to um, travel West. I needed to get some, uh, get a couple of, uh, you know, degrees because that's how you arm yourself. And I think, what I at that time did was I seriously wanted to go for a PhD and, you know, talk about Kashmir in a way uh, that is not only visceral, that is not only emotional, but that is also grounded in fact and that is grounded in research. And I think I had to d- sort of like arm myself to do this. And it's not just a unique journey. There are many other Kashmiris who actually uh, changed the course of their life because uh, this is what we needed to do. So I think Kashmir spurred my journey towards anthropology because I felt like anthropology was a discipline which had so much self-reflexivity. It talks about your own positionality as well. So uh, when this research would kind of come to fruition, on one side, it would be research, but then I would also uh, you know, keep my positionality intact. And uh, that was uh, the space that anthropology gave me. And South Asia, because, uh, because uh, and South Asia and Kashmir, as focus of my research, it never changed because uh, as a Kashmiri, uh, as a Kashmiri scholar, I always, always wanted to talk about Kashmir and talk about the narratives that are inside Kashmir. And I'm not saying that I'm the only one who is talking about Kashmir in this manner or I'm the only I'm one of the first narratives. But this is kind of like the first anthropological ethnographic narrative of the region, especially which talks about women. But then women also feature in this, they, they're very pivotal, but at the same time, they also help you understand uh, the dispute of Kashmir. They also help you understand uh, what Kashmir stands for at the current moment. As we, note, uh, as, as, as we know, currently there is a siege, a 50-day siege going uh, ongoing. Uh, 
it kind of helps us. Uh, it that that's how I formulated it. That's how I thought about this book. That it's going to help understand the human rights situation, but at the same time, not just for the sake of human rights situation being made evident, uh, but it's in service of trying to understand the Kashmir dispute and how Kashmiris are very, very central to that dispute. And I think that's where I began my journey, uh, my own journey, trying to uh, sort of understand for myself and then also uh, making it evident for the readers. So to begin with the broad uh, question, Athar, if I could ask you, how would you describe uh, to our listeners the central uh, conceptual theme and uh, argument of the book and its sort of key players? Uh, and as part of that, if you could also describe to our listeners this one organization uh, on which this book focuses, mm-hmm. the APDP. Uh, so sort of a broad question about the key theme, argument, and mm-hmm. this particular organization. So let's begin with the organization because it kind of helps us uh, make the, the the focus and make the highlight the focus rather. So it's the Association of Parents of Disappeared Persons, and these this is a group of uh, Kashmiri Muslim women whose husbands and whose sons have been disappeared. Uh, it was co-founded by Parvina Ahangar uh, in uh, 1994 along with a human rights lawyer, Parvez Imroz. And uh, currently, there are two uh, groups of APDP, one headed by Parvina and one headed by Parvez Imroz. Uh, they are functional inside Kashmir. They both won, in 2017, they won the Rafto Prize for Human Rights. They co-share, they were co-nominated, and then they won that together. Uh, so this is the focus of the book. What I am doing in this book is I had, I had a long uh, period of research that I spent in Kashmir, I did my field work there. I was with the APDP for a long time, since 2008. And before that, uh, just as a Kashmiri journalist and in several other roles that I had till then, I had noticed uh, the APDP protests happening every month. I was in touch with them as a journalist, uh, as a Kashmiri, just talking to them and asking them what's happening and getting to know their stories. And their stories were not unique in the sense that uh, that I came to know of the stories only from them. These stories were everyone's stories. The, you had neighbors who had disappeared. You had friends who had disappeared. You had loved ones who had disappeared. So these stories were all around us. And then you saw these women very powerfully under the Armed Forces Special Powers Act. And also there is uh, there is there, there's a ban on lawful assembly. It's any four people that meet in Kashmir, uh, they're not allowed to meet. And that law is... Um, or on and off in force always. Uh, so every uh, congregation is seen as an unlawful assembly. At the same time, you have Armed Forces Special Powers Act in uh, effect since 1991, which, uh, which, which, which makes the uh, Indian Army, uh, it makes it all powerful in uh, the region. As a result, there's no accountability and human rights violations have become a norm. Anyone who suspected, if you and I were to talk in Kashmir and be sitting somewhere, an army personnel, a soldier or a policeman can pick us up and take us anywhere and um, no one really knows where we are going and we can be de- detained, we can be killed and that has happened and that keeps happening in Kashmir. So there's no accountability. So the APDP was trying to look for people who had been disappeared and forced disappearances and enforced disappearances as a punishment that is meted out onto people when they uh, it and it can be very random people leave early in the morning and they don't return in the evening they can be kidnappings they can be you know just illegal detainments and 
incommunicated detentions, which are never solved. So that's how all of these people, they uh, got, they were disappeared. So, um, so what happened was uh, that these mothers and these, uh, um, and also other family members, but mostly mothers and mostly wives, and the wives are called half widows. Uh, this was a word that was coined by uh, the, uh, the, uh, the Kashmiri media, uh, the Kashmiri English media. And they, uh, because these women don't know whether their husbands are dead or they're alive. So half widow was the term that was coined for them because they're in this liminal state of waiting. So uh, APDP has this very, very uh, spectacular uh, protest that they do every month. And they get together and this is this is held in a public place. Now you have OFSPA in place. You have the Disturbed Areas Act. Then you also have the Article 144, which prevents uh, the assemblies of people. Now, just think about this in this scenario. And this is the world's highest militarized zone. You have 700,000 soldiers manning the entire state, entire region. And there are bunkers, there are checkpoints. Now, imagine a group of women sitting in a public park and trying to do a protest. And this was for me. This was very riveting. This for me. This was very powerful. And for me, it was. It's. It's the utmost epitome of tragedy that has happened to Kashmiris. But at the same time, I also felt the power that these women were emanating by just getting together under these dire and brutal and tyrannical situation. And um, there were other protests as well, but this was more organized. And they had to take permissions, and then they had to sit in the park, and they had a certain time. Uh, during which they could uh, they could they could protest. So this became a very powerful symbol. And even today, uh, if you think about human rights movement in Kashmir, uh, the symbolic is the APDP. The symbolic is these women who have been doing this kind of protest. But then the protest is not the only aspect. They are also fighting court cases. They're also creating awareness. They're also um, over the years. Even though these women have been accidental activists, they were not, uh, quote-unquote, like a lot of people would say that they're not ideological activists. They, but over the years, what's happened is that these women have become really very strong uh, votaries of uh, the finding solution for Kashmir, whatever that might be, whether they might believe in independence, but they do, or they might believe in accession uh, to Pakistan, but they do believe in uh, solving Kashmir and they do portray this tragedy of Kashmir, not in a vacuum, but uh, as, as, as part of a political problem, uh, as part of something that India is uh, punishing Kashmiris for. So it's not in a vacuum. And that has, uh, that has kind of uh, be become evident in the last uh, 33 years since they have been, uh, since they have been active. So that APDP movement is at the center of the book. It's these women who are at the center of the book, these women activists. Um, the other part of, um, so, and the central con conceptual theme is that, you know, it kind of does a, a twofold work. One is that it tries to look at women and their agency under this acute militarization, this chronic militarization, and it looks at Muslim women and how they find their voice and how they find their agency. But at the same time, it is it is kind of, you know, traveling that way towards also understanding what the dispute of Kashmir is, what uh, Kashmir means for Kashmiris, because so far what has happened is that the world community, uh, the current world community, uh, knows Kashmir as a bilateral dispute. So even if we, when we say Kashmir, 
to a lot of people, it just means a territorial dispute. It means a border dispute between India and Pakistan. But when you uh, look at the work of APDP and when you kind of uh, understand what the message of the book is and what's happening inside uh, the book, when and, and not just the book, but the stories of these, and that's how I have tried to portray it, through the stories of these women and what they say, and also the nuanced way with which they look at the political um uh, complications in Kashmir, you know, even the use of word politics and either use of word siyasat, which is politics in Urdu and Kashmiri, and how they have traversed this journey from day one uh, and where they are now. Early on, they were seen as these poor mothers. They were seen that that was the stereotypical um, jargon that media used for them, especially the Indian media. It looked at them from the lens of a victim. But I think uh, their journey has made it clear that they're not just victims, but they're survivors. And they're not just survivors for the sake of surviving, but they're survivors for the sake of finding a political resolution for the Kashmir, Kashmiri problem. Now, that doesn't mean that they, that while they are very, very formidable as human rights activists, at the same time, if you look at the resistance movement, they do have a they, they don't have a say. They have a presence, but they don't have a say yet. So I think that is something uh, that we will see evolving because there are other people joining the movement in different ways, and the movement is also evolving from uh, just being a uh, disappearance centric to thinking more about human rights situation and to thinking more about the political situation. So. So that's that's the two things that the book tries to do through uh, thinking and through exploring the work and commitment of the APDP. Um, I don't know if I answered your question, but no, thank you, thank you, that was terrific. Um, you know, in the first uh, uh, chapter, Arthur, you mobilize a very interesting category of what uh, you call affective law, and there's a very haunting image throughout this chapter and indeed throughout this book of. Uh, the door which is left uh, slightly opened uh, or left uh, slightly ajar. Um, uh, I was wondering if you could talk a bit about this concept of affective law and the ways in which you mobilize it to question the stability uh, and the hegemony of Indian state law, modern Mm -hmm. state law for that matter. Uh, Could you uh, talk about that with perhaps a couple of examples? Yeah, sure. So, uh, you know, affective law, it kind of began... uh, with me thinking about how do we honor women's legacies? How do we honor women resisting hegemonies? And how do we honor uh, resist? Uh, how do we honor women who are resisting uh, the occupation in Kashmir? Which was, till very recently, people did not associate the word occupation with Kashmir because it has become so multi-layered. It has been made to be seen as complicated, and uh, and and so so that kind of helped me categorize. Uh, not categorize, kind of like reframe these women's, you know, I also mobilize this idea of um, rather deploy the idea of politics of mourning, which these women have used mourning as politics. And because that's the only thing that can be deployed under AFSPA, you can't go out and be confrontational, you'll be shot dead. So you kind of had to see how women mobilize themselves and deploy themselves in public spaces. So, um, when when I started thinking about how do we honor, how do we honor these processes and how do we kind of validate these processes, we might not have institutional uh, branding for uh, what women are doing. Uh, they might not be professional activists, but how do we say that these are women who have been resistant and who have been the sole bearers of 
a human rights movement. Today, if you do a Google search on human rights in Kashmir, these women will come up in vast images, so much documentation around the kind of work that they have done. So when I first began my research, uh, I was already associated with APDP um, in, in different capacities as just a social activist, as just a journalist, as just a Kashmiri. But when I actually began work in 2008 with them, I, as an anthropologist, and the beauty of anthropology is that you have to be with the people. You have to, you know, technically live with them and be with them and and see and observe and empathize. And it gave me a chance to do that. And I noticed that one of my key uh, partners, uh, she would keep the door open. And initially, when the first day I remember, it was very, very cold uh, in Kashmir that year. And she kept her door open. And when I asked her, she said she feels cho- she feels choked if she keeps the door closed. So I thought it was just to do with some kind of, you know, maybe hot flashes or something like that. But as I came to know her, uh, she would never close her door fully. It would always be a little open. And as we got talking about it, I realized that uh, she's always, always waiting for her son. And the open door kind of was her way of keeping the hope alive and then I also saw similar motives of waiting and uh, so as I kind of began my research and I began to get uh, deep into observing them observing this uh, community uh, that I was working with especially uh, the APDP women and some other women as well so it it seemed like there was this heightening of uh, the motive of waiting it was very there was this intense um, um, this intense feeling around waiting and uh, there, there were several things happening. And once this became an ethnographic motive for me, I began to follow it very thoroughly. I was kind of like, you know, I, I was always like clued to see if something is coming up because it, to me, it felt like waiting was a tool. It wasn't just waiting as in just waiting, a resigned waiting. It was a potent waiting. It was a waiting that was attentive. It was a waiting that uh, that allowed these women to feel somewhat powerful in, in face of this huge uh, injustice that India has created inside Kashmir and the punishment that it has meted out on people. Uh, so I started thinking, uh, you know, who, who, um, uh, Zuna, the woman who I was working very closely with, my research partner, uh, once she mentioned, she said, uh, you know, um, you know, during curfews, what happens is that you have to close your doors and you have to stay indoors because that's what a government curfew is. So Zuna would say that I never close my door. Even if there's a curfew, I'll keep my door open. So to me, it was it was like this epitome of resistance that if they find your door open, if the soldiers see your door open, they can barge inside and they can shoot you. So she she once she had made this door the epitome of her her struggle the epitome of hope and hope for justice, even though justice doesn't arrive, but it's always an arrival. And so she is there, she's manning her door, she's keeping it open. But then she also has this other side to it where she isn't keeping it closed when she is supposed to under a curfew. And she's she's telling me this. So to me, it was very potent. I felt like all these women, they are following a certain law. It might not be an institutional law. It might not be a formalized law. It might not be a recognized law. Let it be a law that you are only excavating after ethnographic vigor is applied, but it needed to be validated. And I, I kind of started formulating this idea of affective law that these women have, uh, in contrast to the sovereign's law, to the law of the Indian government, the hegemony that you have to uh, 
you know, close your doors when uh, when there is a curfew. So it kind of like started uh, emerging in different ways and surfacing in different places. And I felt like uh, this was also validating and honoring their resistance. So I felt like uh, just terming it effective law and, and kind of like going with it and seeing how it flows. And I felt like it did the job and it did it did for me because I felt like this was a personal validation for me to when I was thinking about women's agency in Kashmir. And I felt like they are doing something very tangible. Of course, there is uh, the social, this patriarchy, and then there's also militarized hegemony, which is also patriarchal, heavily nationalistic. And these women have to sometimes, uh, you know, most of the times they have to, uh, they have to face uh, the society, and then they also have to face the militarized hegemony. And these are the tools that they are deploying to kind of overcome all of that. And uh, affective law to me seemed to be helping me uh, present and portray and uh, help define the agency that they are showing and that they are using to resist the Indian occupation and also uh, tell their society how they should be, um, you know, working as activists and how they should become public. Terrific. Uh, in the next two chapters, Arthur, you go into some really uh, fascinating and you know, oftentimes uh, really tragic detail in terms of the stories uh, of many of these women as they uh, navigate and negotiate uh, uh, the condition of these enforced uh, disappearances. Um, could you tell us about uh, the examples and stories of two of such women who uh, center uh, the next chapter, which uh, the, the examples of Parveena and Sadaf Khan. Mm-hmm. And if you could talk a bit about the mechanisms of protest that they have deployed, uh, different but uh, still overlapping, and what sorts of affective registers uh, uh, and bodily practices do those mechanisms uh, display and enact in the public sphere? So in Parveena's, uh, in Parveena and in Sadaf Khan, I see, I kind of like wanted to, uh, wanted to present two activists uh, Parvina as a mother and Sadaf Khan as the half widow, because I think uh, what they help us enable us uh, to see in this struggle is how how women deploy and how they deploy their presence and how women make themselves visible. And I felt that was very very important. Uh, Parvina is a mother. Her son was disappeared in 1994. He was picked up during the night from his maternal uncle's home. She didn't see him being picked up, but her friend did. Her brother did, and she relives that uh, night every day almost and then she was also spurred on she was strong enough to start this movement and get all these parents together and she is a mother that's how primarily she portrays herself and that's how she deploys herself and that's how in in the public space because you know after everything is said and done Kashmir is a patriarchy I like to call it a benign patriarchy because women really haven't had, it it was always a very egalitarian uh, um, society where men and women, uh, especially the working class, I I like to call it a working class patriarchy because uh, men and women have always worked together in complementary situations. So if the women are, uh, women used to and still do, they sell the produce and men are the ones who are farming. So um, another job is something like, you know, women are uh, selling the fish and while men are fishing. So Kashmiri society has been egalitarian in that sense. So it's not as if women were not seen in the public space, but of course being 
socially conservative, being an old traditional society, there are those there are those segregated spaces, which of course are complementary. But at the same time, um, there are some decorous behaviors that you have to follow that you cannot be in the public. You cannot. And mourning was very, very private. It's always been a private uh, situation for people and people have mourned within the four walls of their home. But what APDP is doing is that it's bringing mourning out into the public square, into the public plaza, because now they don't have the luxury to do it inside their own home. And also under AFSPA, the the, the de facto military rule that is prevalent inside Kashmir and after the siege, it's a de jure occupation almost. Uh, what you see is that there is no, there's this blurriness between the public and private sphere in Kashmir. So your home, it can be barred into any time. And when while you're out in public, uh, and a lot of people like to come outside their homes to sit outside uh, because there is threat of the military that they might, you know, barge into your home and do any, something to you. Uh, but then when you're sitting outside in the public as a woman, there is some there is some decorous behaviors that you have to follow. You have to follow a certain norm. And now to think about it, that APDP has to take its mission and it has to sit in the public plaza because it is using politics of mourning to be heard. And what do these women do? How do they how do they activate themselves in that situation? So what actually happens is that there are certain norms, uh, there are certain tacit ways in which they have that 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 have emerged around their uh, activism. So Parvina mostly talks about herself, and because she's a mother, she is uh, looking for her son, and not just her son, but other people as well. And being the chairperson of the movement, uh, she she's foremost a mother. That's how she narrativizes herself. But then she's also had to emerge from a young mother who lost her son in 1994. She was in her 30s then. She's also had to convince her husband uh, to let her be an activist. And he ha- they also had other kids and she she didn't she had to take care of them as well. But at the same time, uh, her husband couldn't do the activism she does because one, he's a primary breadwinner. Second, men faced direct security discrimination, which doesn't mean women don't. But there's always this 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 difference in power. Like if the soldiers are men, and then you have women protesters, so there's always that differential, the power differential, where the soldiers will treat you as weak. They might beat you. They might physically do something to you, or may harass you, molest you, or even sexually violate women. But uh, they won't take to bullets immediately, even though that has been known to happen. And but so early on, uh, the APDP protesters, they were when they were doing the protest, they used to be harassed, they used to be beaten, uh, and they still face a lot of harassment because of the timings that they have to be within in the park. So all of that happens. So which means that these women have to kind of uh, create uh, a persona for them. They have to. A persona for themselves they have to they have to be the activists who are actually seen in public but at the same time are also socially acceptable uh parvina on her part she also uh, sometimes she likes to say that uh, you know she is uh, she is a mutz in kashmiri mutz means that uh, a crazed woman but this crazed woman can either be a mystic uh, who is very divine and who can help you um you know in your supplications and all of that or it could be simply that someone is uh, you know, mentally unbalanced or has some mental health challenges. So there are people like that. So she often likens herself 
to Amit saying that, uh, you know, I just go from street to street looking for my son because that's not that was not a socially acceptable behavior that you will be sitting in a public plaza, that you will be in the street and that you will be looking for your son and you will be going to the spaces where men are uh, which, which are where men dominantly rule the roost like the courts and the uh, the police stations and these are seen as uncouth places where which are not fit for women especially in uh, traditional um, setups and that was what kashmir was 20 years back things have changed a lot in the last 20 to 33 years since the active armed conflict has taken place so that's one uh, side of the story. That's Parvina. That's how she kind of deploys herself. She is a mother and she's a mother activist. And she also invokes the power of motherhood. And she also kind of, uh, she also, um, you know, overrides any social norms by deploying herself as a mother all the time, reminding people that she is a mother. She can be in the public and she has the, she ha- you know, she wouldn't be a good mother if she's not looking for her son. And then there is Sadaf Khan, who is a half a widow. And Sadaf is also, uh, the reason I kind of uh, engage with Sadaf a lot is because, to me, uh, she shows the power of how a woman can become an activist in a socially conservative society against the military or hegemony. But at the same time, uh, you know, she uh, she's she's a woman who is, who is also... Um, She's very beautiful. She is. Uh, she's stereotypically beautiful. She has. Uh, Kashmiris are known for their apple red cheeks, and she. She's. She's quintessentially a beautiful woman. But then, how does she? How. How does she? Now that she's a half widow, she's also seen as a widow. The problem is that she doesn't see herself fully as a widow. And a widow, and that kind of becomes <clears throat> a situation for her uh, to negotiate. So how how she does that and how gracefully she does that. And uh, today she's an activist. She's a spokesperson for for the APDP and how she has brought herself from uh, the quote unquote, the victim half widow who who kind of uh, anyone can cast aspersions on socially and politically to the to the point where she is earning a good amount of uh, money for her kids and keeping her home intact. And she has come so long uh, being this activist who was very vulnerable to someone who's become a formidable voice. But again, she, how she presents herself and how she doesn't, how she doesn't draw um, a lot of cloud from what she's doing, but kind of keeps persisting with trying to find her husband. And a lot of people, when I talk to um, outside Kashmir and they're like, Okay, so all of them are looking for uh, looking to go back to their old patriarchal families. So that to me becomes really interesting to see what they're seeking as women. They're seeking restoration of their families, the return of their men, but they're also not the same women they were 33 years ago or whatever time has elapsed since their uh, kin disappeared. So they're also uh, these women who are who are more emancipated, they're more <clears throat> anointed into human rights language, and they are using human rights language and the rights that Islam gives them and kind of putting them together and creating a public persona for themselves that has become, you know, very, very, uh, very effective in the society, that people take them very seriously and people respect them. And at the same time, they see them as representatives of this legacy that is a trauma for all Kashmiris. And at the same time, they see them as voices. So uh, right now, they might not have a seat at the table where 
you have women negotiating for Kashmir. But I see this as a movement that is very, very potent and very generative for futures and for, for women who are coming into this arena of human rights or activism for Kashmir. So let's uh, continuing on uh, uh, this thread. Uh, in the next chapter, you continue giving uh, sort of some of the uh, ways in which this resistance unfolds uh, in everyday life in terms of public activities and performances and so on. Um, and you, in this chapter, you especially show in really remarkable, uh, a bit remarkable uh, astuteness the kinds of ways in which uh, some of these mechanisms take on gendered forms and choreographies in terms of how the workload is, for example, divided uh, in a, a particular household and, and so on. So I was wondering if you could speak a bit about uh, that theme of this following chapter, the kind of gendered forms and choreographies that this quest to resist enforced disappearances takes. And also I found it very interesting, there was a, a segment of this chapter in which you uh, discussed uh, the reason why the APDP refused to accept uh, an award which was being given to them by the CNN, IBN, uh, sort of an Indian uh, media networks, and they refused that award. And it was a very powerful moment in that chapter. So I was wondering if you could just talk a bit about that moment also. Thank you. So, you know, when people talk about disappearances in Kashmir and they talk about women's activism, especially, and not, not Kashmiris, uh, or people who are very uh, nuanced when they look at Kashmir, but let's say Indian narrative, when they look at uh, the the APDP movement, it's almost as if things are happening in a vacuum, as if there's no political context. So uh, what usually happens is that, uh, let me go to the CNN IB an award first, and then I'll come to the, the gendered forms and choreographies. So the CNN IBN, it's a it's an Indian uh, nas- national television um, um, setup. Uh, it's an it's a very well known organization. So what happens there is that they also uh, have instituted this award where, where they award the best Indians, and I think it was 2011, 2012 um, when they nominated Parvina uh, as the best Indian award, and. Uh, I think uh, there is also something connected to it, like shining India brand, India, something like that, that these people, these are the people who have contributed to brand India and shining India. Now, when this happens, uh, I mean, to anyone who is watching Kashmir and anyone who is a Kashmiri, this is appalling because what Parvina is fighting, she is fighting uh, state terrorism, basically. She is fighting uh, Indian terrorism. Uh, that is being meted on Kashmiris. Like you can't simply disappear people. And there ha- are 8,000 to 10,000 disappearances, enforced disappearances that have been enacted by the Indian government forces. So then, uh, so India has uh, impacted uh, Parvina's life. And she is working against these disappearances. She's working to find these people. So she is demanding accountability from the state. And suddenly you have this award coming to her, uh, she being nominated that she's going to be the best Indian award. I mean, there's a huge contrast here uh, between the kind of commitment and the motivation and the work that she is doing and the focus of that work. And there is another layer to it. Kashmiris, till very recently, they had a dual citizenship in, in a sense. One, they were permanent residents of residents of Kashmir. Uh, which which was a sovereign entity when they entered into this disputed accession with India in 1947. So very recently, on August 5th, we saw that that status was revoked. 
So many Kashmiris, if you talk to them, and they will be very clear in saying that their passport is Indian because they need to travel uh, to other places. So they need a passport and that goes through India. But they are not Indian. They are Kashmiri and they're very, very nationalistic people. So when you look at the CNN IBN award, to me, it seemed like it, it seemed like very perverse form of uh, honoring Parveena uh, through this narrative of being an Indian, through the narrative of being a fighter and kind of like contributing to brand India. She's actually uh, she's actually uh, revealing to the world what the true face of India is. And uh, when they issued a statement that was very interesting to see how they were actually talking about all of these points and then also talking about how they want true justice and a just peace and a political resolution to Kashmir uh, based on the principles of freedom, liberty, and all of that. So that, again, is kind of going back to the political situation of Kashmir. So it's not happening in a vacuum. I mean, they're not just looking for people. And if they found those people or if they got any justice, it doesn't mean they're going to be sitting quietly after that. Uh, so the, so, so that's that's what the... CNN IBN award controversy was. And then also talking about the kind of uh, gendered forms of resistance that take place. So in the Indian narrative, again, this is connected to how uh, the Kashmiri resistance is portrayed in the Indian narrative. Most of the time, what they what they do is when, when uh, the women activists are talked about, it's almost as if there is, they, they exist in a vacuum, as if uh, the women activists are doing everything on their own. So what I also wanted to say was what the men are doing behind the scenes. Now, men uh, have, there are male human rights activists who are working and who are also currently, many of them are detained and many of them are persecuted every day uh, and women are too. So I, I kind of wanted to say how men help women, how men in APDP have helped women uh, because most of the APDP women, uh, as you will see, they come from very marginalized uh, sections of the society. They're not; uh, most of them are unlettered. And uh, over the years, they have they are they have educated themselves in legal, um, you, you know, because they deal with legal cases. So they kind of have educated themselves in how the court works, how the police works. Uh, but at the same time, uh, they haven't been formally educated. So uh, that is a lacuna. So what early on happened was that the way APDP kind of converged and the way APDP became as a movement was because men were primary breadwinners. They could not take on the mantle because these were regular families that were affected. So the men could not uh, take the mantle off becoming uh, routine and day-to-day activists. So it fell upon the women. After they were finishing their work, just like Parveena, after she was done cooking and everything, she would jump on and go on to do her activism while her husband worked. And she also says this, and this is in the book as well, that she feared for her husband because if he would were to become an activist, it would become a totally different thing because men face uh, a double security discrimination. So, so that's another side to it, which means a lot of people want to kind of take this movement and say, also present it as a case, especially in the Indian narrative against Kashmiri patriarchy. But I also wanted to show that uh, Kashmiri men have been behind this movement. It might not be all rosy and it might not all be smooth. There is a, a structure of patriarchy where men are hege- men have the hegemony. But at the same time, they have helped 
uh, get the basic legal uh, paperwork. They have helped them with the office routines and they still do. And then the women are kind of taking it forward. And over the years, they have taken over those routines as well. So that's the, uh, and then also thinking about early on the ritual of search. How does that even begin when a person disappears? What roles do people have? There are roles that people have played in communities, like you have a community elder who helps you, who gets a couple of people together, then there's the family, then there's the mother, and then they run and from one army camp to another, then they go to one government office to another to find a clue about their missing kin, who usually is a man under 35 and mostly bearded, because bearded is seen as something that is entirely uh, kind of falling into the stereotype of terrorist, uh, quote unquote. So uh, so that's a ritual that uh, was early on uh, kind of formulated and it was playing over and over and over in these different families of the APDP. And uh, there was a gendered uh, kind of distribution of work that had happened. And over the years that I'm not I'm not saying that it's all black and white. There have been other things. Uh, people have followed different patterns, but this was mostly what they were doing, uh, getting the paperwork together. And then the women would take over, especially they would take over the protest because uh, as over the years in the last 33 years, what has happened is that uh, the APDP struggle is really known for its iconic um, iconic protest. And uh, what Parina's group does is they will have they will they will sing uh, they, they will sing all kinds of morning songs, wedding songs, uh, and uh, they they will talk and they will mourn with each other. And then the other faction, uh, their motive has become silent. They don't talk at all, uh, which is not to say they're different, but they're kind of like uh, trying to uh, sort of like you know uh, bring forth different aspects of their um, of their um, struggle. So, um, so I think that's that's kind of like how uh, the Kashmiri society geared itself to resist the enforced disappearances, and these are eight to ten thousand disappearances, which is a lot. And uh, right now you have about uh, 2,500 plus widows, half widows, who have refused to get married and uh, who 91% of them at least, and they are trying to engage with the struggle and also try to raise their kids because these are the only two primary things that they see uh, as, as a commitment for their lives. And they are playing the most important role now because, uh, as you see, most of the mothers in the last 33 years, they're growing, growing older and older. And what we see, even my primary research uh, partner, Zuna, she passed away four years ago. And similar is happening. Every day there's a new death. Every day there's a, there's a new illness. And as the old women, old mothers are passing away, the baton is being passed to the half-widows. And now the half-widows are also above 45, most of them. And you see a different phase of life and a different evolution of this resistance movement in them. And now you have the kids actually taking over the legacy of what their grandmothers and mothers have left for them. The next uh, chapter, the key category that holds it uh, together uh, is that of military humanitarianism. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a bit about uh, this category and some of the uh, insidious operations uh, and mechanisms of such humanitarian military gestures on the part of the Indian military and how they have informed and sort of uh, pressured the conditions and the terrain in which uh, Kashmiris then negotiate and resist um, this Indian settler uh, colonial regime in Kashmir. I was wondering if you could speak a bit about this category and how it works uh, in this chapter. 
So military humanitarianism, I felt like, you know, the story of Kashmir would not be complete. Even talking about the half-widows and talking about the mothers in the APDP and uh, talking about the activists in general, I felt like the story would not be complete without talking about military humanitarianism because it does affect everyone's life. So military humanitarianism, it kind of evolved 1992 onwards. It's a very um, well-recognized category where you have military deploying basically humanitarian aid. So what you see in Kashmir happening is uh, you have the Armed Forces Special Powers Act, which means the army is everywhere. You have the highest density of soldiers in any one single place. There is one soldier for every eight to 10 Kashmiris. And there are bunkers everywhere. There are checkpoints everywhere. There are military camps everywhere. So what has happened, especially uh, in not in the capital as much, even though there are, uh, there are different uh, programs in place, but at the same time, if you see the rural areas, if you see the con- countryside, what has happened is that you have army bases and military camps very close to uh, close to different communities living together. And after Operation Sadbhavna, which is the Operation Sadbhavna, Sadbhavna in Hindi means goodwill. It was started in 1997 by one of the army um, army officers in uh, in Kashmir, Arjun Ray. And he has a book on it and he talks about military humanitarianism and he talks about how it can help them get Kashmiris on their side. And the other word for military humanitarianism is winning hearts and minds, which is the acronym of VAM. So what the military tries to do is it tries to uh, behave and it tries to pretend as a humanitarian organization. So you have a very schizophrenic thing going on. On one side, you have the military which is uh, night and day, they're patrolling, uh, they're beating people, they're detaining people, they're harassing people. There is sexual assault, which is well documented by the Human Rights Watch, as well as that they have deployed uh, sexual violence as a tool of war, as a weapon of war. So that's happening on one side. And on the other side, what's happening is that they're trying to do medical camps. They're trying to do sports camps. They're trying to reach out to people, you know, during Ramadan, uh, when people, communities get together in masjids and they try to break fast together, military also hosts uh, the bra- uh, fast breaking parties and they uh, invite the community. And that creates a lot of schisms with this is within the society as well, because uh, the question of like who goes to those um, who goes to those events where the fast breaking takes place. Some people have to go out of coercion. You have community elders who have nothing else to do but to go because if they don't go, uh, it's resisting the army and there can be re- repercussions. So there's lots of fear around it. And that's what military humanitarianism has done. On one side, it tries to prey on the vulnerable populations who need that medical help and who need some sort of, uh, you know, support from the administration. Now, what happens when you do not have a very active administration and suddenly the military is all in all? Uh, military humanitarianism, because there's a lot of money that's pumped into this uh, project inside Kashmir. So what you see is, that military is uh, is kind of casting its shadow into everything that a community does. Uh, it has a say in uh, who gets to play sports. It picks up different kids who are interested in cricket, who are interested in different kinds of sports, and then it has it organizes um, it organizes events for them. And then what it also has done is that they have started schools, which are called the goodwill schools. And uh, you know there are people who are who ha- don't do not have wherewithal to send their kids uh, to a good school. 
So it's not as if they uh, give education free. They actually charge money. But at the same time, uh, kids do go to these schools and uh, and that's another that's another service that they uh, provide. And the army likes to say that this is a service that they provide so that uh, they can show the good side of military to them, that they can show them that India cares. But at the same time, it's not it's not as if everything is this uh, this smooth and this clear and this genuine. So many times what they have done in different projects is that if they have given something to the people like blankets, uh, they might take them back. Uh, and uh, if they give something like medicines and something like that, it might just be a photo opportunity. At the same time, um, what they also do is that if you are with them in a certain event and something is uh, something positive, they're doing something positive for the society, at the same time, you will have young boys detained, young boys tortured from the same community. So that's the kind of uh, that's the kind of uh, very diabolical role that military humanitarianism plays. It creates schisms in the society. It is really, really uh, kind of like you know making people confused about what uh, the military is trying to do with them. It, it's very absurd. But at the same time, people are not fooled. They know what's happening. They know this is. Uh, this is a big uh, move to win their hearts and minds, and uh, and 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 it's just a colonial persona that is just camouflaging itself uh, in in this humanitarian ideal, uh, which is what army is not first and foremost for Kashmiris. It is an occupation force, and that's what Kashmiris see it as. So what I would say is, from 1997 onwards, even though Sadbhavna, the goodwill uh, military humanitarian. Pres- humanitarianism has gone on but at the same time i can say that it's not been very successfully uh, it's not been very successful with the people they still see uh, the indian army under afspa as a colonial force and since 1947 that's what the that's what the perspective has been with kashmiris you mentioned uh, paperwork a bit earlier Arthur, and the next chapter which is a really fascinating uh, chapter in which you uh, talk about the kind of um, archival uh, layers that have to be navigated as part of this quest to resist uh, disappearances. Um, I was wondering if we could perhaps uh, talk about this chapter through this very interesting uh, category or idea of the file um, as a what you call, and I quote here, site of affect and the politics of mourning. I was wondering if you could talk a bit about the role that the file uh, plays uh, uh, as a site of affect and the politics of mourning and the sorts of sort of uh, archival mazes and what you call an archival fever that the victims of enforced disappearances have to contend with as they seek uh, redress from the very law, as you very nicely put at one point in the chapter, from the very law that is responsible uh, for their pain and uh, misery and injury. Well, you know, to me, the file, it's a site of resistance, of course. It's a site of affect, politics of mourning. And again, it kind of goes back to thinking about the affective law. I'll, I'll just uh, briefly give this, illustrate this for you. So uh, on one hand, you have uh, you have people who have been disappeared. So these are living uh, beings. These are sons. These are husbands. These are These are very much beloveds of these families. And they are disappeared. They just disappear one day and never come back. And then there's no, then you go to the police and the police doesn't accept your first information report, which is the complaint that you have to lodge with the police. And this happens 
That's the law. And if you go to the uh, police, there was a tacit agreement between different uh, institutions of the police and the army that they are not going to accept the FIR. And that has that is it's a it's a documented fact that in the uh, in the 90s, many of these families which had faced human rights violations from disappearances to killings to rapes. The FIRs, the first information reports to the police were not accepted. So they don't have an, most of them do not have an FIR. And then uh, what else do they have that proves the disappearance? They technically have nothing. So they have their court cases where they are uh, alleging, uh, the, the word used is alleged, they are they're blaming the government they are blaming a certain army uh, um, certain uh, section of army somewhere they're um they're alleging that someone has picked up their son or their husband so they're making these cases and then they have court cases which some of the human rights lawyers are fighting for them pro bono so they have that paperwork but there is nothing really tangible proving the disappearance uh, there is nothing tangible saying that they're son or their husband was disappeared and this is the proof for it so what do you do in that scenario how do you how do you how do you become agentive and how do you show your agency how do you become the survivor you want to be because i think that's what these women are doing they're trying to show their resistance and they're also they're also trying to um uh, not just show resistance but they're but they're also trying to um, i mean i'm not saying that they're just confrontational about the resistance part but also that they're the people who have been disappeared, they they existed because most of these erasures they they just they they just erode and they just erase the very identity of the people. So there have been uh, documented cases where uh, some of the army officers said, "Hey, this person didn't even exist. Uh, are you sure that he existed?" So there have been those questions, and when I uh, came face to face with those narratives. To me, it was very powerful when I see what these women are doing. What they do is every bit and piece of paper that is connected to their own disappearance or to the narrative of disappearance inside Kashmir, they collect all of them. They collect, um, because they have their uh, complaints, they go to government offices. So what they might do there is they might uh, lodge a complaint, which is not a formal complaint, but they're actually asking to meet their son. And there might be a sympathetic bureaucrat and he might give them some written thing. There might be a sympathetic uh, police officer who might write a little note um, for the army officer to allow them to meet their son or something like that. All of those little bits and pieces of paper that technically um, do not mean any formal um, documentation, but put together uh, for them. It is a file and they call it a file. They take good care of it. They make sure that they put it in the most protected place. And whenever they come to the protest, you have uh, many women, they will have these files dangling from their side because that's 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 where uh, that's where this is the repository. This is where this is where everything is. And if you interview them, they will make sure that they open those uh, files and they show you each page. So there is an office of district commissioner. Uh, which is a bureaucratic office, and it takes care of different uh, communities and different um, different cities. So that's one of the offices that these women visit because you can take your complaint there, and they can help you with different uh, different processes. So not that they have helped them a lot, but they do go there and they lodge their complaints. Sometimes they even uh, used to do some cases which gave them compensation, not because they wanted to mon- the money, but they wanted someone to hear them. So they have all these little bits and pieces of paper in this file 
and it does it technically does nothing then uh, zuna my main research partner she would also collect the cause lists where you had the where, where the cases were published even if her case would be delayed and if her case would be postponed she would have all those cause lists any kind of report any media report that would be in the file because for them the file was everything uh, even if it did not prove anything but it told a lot if you sat with them they would perform the file for you if they do not have the fir which is the initial complaint they will go over everything that has happened to them in pursuit of that fir so they're kind of like registering the fir through its absence so you have to be there you have to know and you have to be with them to understand the effect that this file has and the weight it has in their life so it might not institutionally be something of a document that kind of proves something but it tells a lot and for me it beca- became a site of affect and a site of politics uh, for these women and um so sometimes uh, and and you know they wouldn't uh, i i would sometimes offer uh, like can i carry your bag or can i carry your file they would always kind of tell me that it's okay and if i was handling it uh, they would always make sure that i handled it carefully and uh, parvina has a set of files now that she has uh, she has a son's file but then she has other files as well that she keeps on other um, other men who have disappeared and then she also has a file on her own activism and so she always made sure that if i wanted some copies that i got the copies from them rather than taking the files or because they are very very important to them because this is uh, you know initially when parvina was starting the group and uh, initially when she was working with the human rights lawyer and it was just a couple of people uh, working as an as the apdp they didn't have any documentation so they were actually taking newspaper clippings and they were putting those news clip paper clippings together and having uh, these documentations like very uh, faded xerox copies of those reports they still exist and she has on uh, she has them on the files so they became really uh, treasured documents and you can see that proliferating in um in the lives of all these women because that's what they do they want to start the file so whenever anyone joins apdp uh especially 10 years back when new members were joining uh, the first thing that the senior uh, activists would ask them like have you started the file so it didn't mean that the file would become something very prominent something very uh, it would become extremely productive it just meant that you have to start your fight from the file because it's a written document and we will die but the written document won't die and that written document whether that written document is just a news report or it's a cause list or it is an actual fir it didn't really differ because after everything is said and done under ofspa the armed forces special powers act government of india is not going to institute any form of justice they haven't done that so far all disappearances remain disappearances except for a couple of people who were in incommunicado dis- detention for a number of years and then kind of su- suddenly turned up and i talk about one such case but most of the disappearances have remained disappearances in the last 33 years there is no clue even though uh, the women uh, the activists in the in parvina's apdp uh they they know their perpetrators they have the names most of them they know who picked up their son they know the name of the army contingent uh they know the name of the battalions that were uh, deployed in their area when their son or husband or any other kin disappeared so 
so that, that it's it's proven that after everything is said and done, this documentation is not going anywhere. But it's still when they are collecting it, when they are uh, housing it on their bodies uh, during the protest, it has it is a site. It is a site which is very potent and very very uh, productive and very generative for this struggle. And it does show the power of written word, power of documentation. But it also shows it's uh, the absurdity of it all under an occupation. You know, one of the things that I found really productive throughout uh, this book, Athar, um, and especially I think this is a credit to the intimacy of your ethnography, is that you really show this kind of bipolarity between this world of the Indian military and the Indian state's um, uh, sort of official discourses and educational institutions and so on uh, in, in Kashmir, and then, of course, uh, the population which does not recognize that state as legitimate uh, uh, and, of course, is suffering through the settler colonial occupation. And that really comes across this theme uh, in really striking detail in the last substantive chapter of the book, in which you try to show ways in which practices of remembrance and mourning among Kashmiri victims of Indian oppression, how they collapse the whole public-private distinction and provide uh, what one might call you know, counter-publics to these official Indian nationalist discourses and regimes of political and discursive engineering and so on. I was wondering if you could speak a bit about that uh, chapter and uh, how uh, are these distinctions of the public and the private uh, collapsed uh, in these practices of remembrance and mourning among uh, Kashmiris? See, I think uh, the lives of Kashmiris, they have been uh, turned uh, upside down uh, since 1947. It was camouflaged. There was a lot of indirect violence happening that the world didn't know about. Uh, it was still kind of uh, hot on the UN agenda from 1960s onwards, 70s, and then 80s. It kind of takes a new turn. 1989, you have the popular armed struggle starting. And uh, what I was earlier when I was talking about uh, the home becoming home is usually seen as a sacred space. And now we have the APDP movement, which actually takes place in a public plaza. And this is a very, very intimate act of mourning that Kashmiris used to do inside families. And now they're doing it in the in public in the gaze of not just Kashmiris, but also soldiers and everyone who is around them. So what has happened in the past 33 years in Kashmir is that there is a collapse in what the public and private is because there is there is nothing is sacred anymore. Under AFSPA, Armed Forces Special Powers Act, it gives army enormous powers to enter into your homes, to open your phones, to open your bags. There is no privacy. There is absolutely zero privacy. There are uh, instances where women, uh, their, their sanitary pads, their, their, uh, their napkins and tampons, they have been opened. Like the very basic intimate things that uh, cannot be touched in other parts of the world, are, it's, it would be seen as totally crass. But Kashmiri women and Kashmiri men, so that's the level of, uh, that's the level of privacy. Uh, lack of privacy that Kashmiris are dealing with. So in that situation, uh, the there is a collapse between public and a, pri- a private situation. So now if you're inside a home, it has happened to me many times that um, I was uh, in my home and then, uh, you know, do, be in a routine situation, maybe in the bathroom, like my families and uh, my, my, my parents, and you have the army come in and you suddenly have to answer to them and you have to open the door. And that happens to Kashmiris all the time. So there is no privacy. There is no security. There is no safety. So and then you also have these this the APDP movement. And what they are doing is the way they are remembering the, the, the resistance is to remember. 
the resistance is to memorialize because because memory is banned in Kashmir. You cannot mourn these men. You cannot mourn anyone killed. You cannot mourn the people who have been, uh, you know, rampantly killed and wounded. So what they do is they take this uh, trauma and they are taking it to the public and that's where they sit. So at the same time, what's happened is that home, which was a sacred place, it's not sacred anymore. And then there's another another um, dichotomy that's kind of like falling apart is, uh, you know, what do you do when you are in a funeral? So what you see these women doing when they are in a funeral, uh, all of these women, they get together and what they would do is they, there are elegies and there are dirges that they sing. They sing all kinds of Kashmiri songs, but then they're also mourning the youth of these men who have been disappeared. They're also mourning the men who would have been bridegrooms. And suddenly the mourning party, it turns into um, it turns into a little, uh, uh, you know, session where these women actually want to sing wedding songs to all of these men. Because of what they have lost because of the tragedy that has occurred. So they're kind of like envisaging a future that never could be for them. So suddenly it turns into, into a session where they are also singing these songs, which they're not supposed to sing in a funeral. But because of the tragedy of the situation, these mothers who could not see their sons marry, who could not see their sons become fathers, or the half-widows who could not see their, fa- their husbands as fathers take care of their children, they suddenly start singing all those songs. So you see that collapse too. It's a funeral. It's a politics of mourning, but at the same time, it's kind of trying to access that 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 sense of uh, what would have been a very hopeful future. So at the same time, the other thing that we see is uh, that um, the scenario of a wedding, which I talk about, and this is again at a home of a woman whose son has disappeared and uh, other sons have been killed in an encounter. She's an old woman. She's a very uh, senior activist in the APDP, uh, very well known, uh, very well loved. She's the beloved of everyone. Uh, so what we see happening there is that this is it's a marriage party of her two granddaughters. And what happens inside the soiree that's to take place, the songs that have to be sung, that her granddaughter wants uh, to sing the songs of the disappeared, to sing the songs of the killed and the martyred, because that is a genre of songs in the wedding repertoire that has been added in the last 30 years. And suddenly all the songs are about the people who have been disappeared, who've been killed. So that's a commemoration happening. Outside, what happens is that Indian government doesn't allow these kind of memorializations. They, if someone, if a militant gets killed, um, the funeral, of course, it takes place. But at the same time, uh, there is a lot of uh, disproportionate use of violence on that funeral. People will get killed. People will get wounded because of the pellet shotguns. But what you see happening in the privacy of marriage is a private history lesson that these women are giving to the young kids and women and men who are around at that particular time. So you see this collapse of private and public and funeral and wedding gaiety. So it's all kind of like collapsing into each other. And to think that uh, Kashmiris are living the absurdity of Indian occupation, and it and it, it really takes ethnographic vigor for all of us to look at these lives and tell the world that uh, you have to understand these nuances and that can pierce the lies that India has told the world for the last 30 years and for the last 72 years since 1947. And all of this kind of contributes 
to that knowledge. And it pierces that veil that has been put upon uh, Kashmir, that it's a democracy, that there is an electoral democracy that has been implemented in Kashmir. But that's not the truth. Uh, You actually have AFSPA, uh, which is an authoritarian law, a draconian law uh, that is clamped down on the region. Uh, Since August 5th, we have seen the siege in Kashmir. But the siege is a very, it's an epitome of what has happened in the past 33 years. And this has kept happening over and over and over. And, and, and it's that, in that scenario that all of these distinctions have collapsed into each other. Um, Athar, I found it very striking that uh, every chapter of this uh, book uh, begins with a very poignant uh, short poem. Uh, I was wondering uh, why uh, uh, is that? And uh, perhaps as a way to end our discussion on the, the book, um, perhaps uh, if I could ask you to uh, share any one of uh, those poems, if you, if you may. Sure. Uh, you know, uh, the I also write poetry. And when I became an anthropologist, I thought that, and I do mention this in, uh, you know, because anthropolo- as an anthropologist, you do have to talk a little bit about your positionality and where you stand. So I do a little bit of that. Uh, that's where I kind of explain uh, the poetry part of it. And uh, I thought that, you know, when I was doing, po- when I was began fieldwork, I thought, where do I keep my poems that I'm writing? And uh, it it kind of like slowly dawned on me that this probably is a part is part of my field work is part of my life and I started to accept it as such. So ethnographic poetry is something that I've continued doing for the past ten years and I've also like created a solid niche for it in my life and in my anthropological work. So I keep doing it, uh, and it became a part of my book because. My field notes, many of my field notes were in form of poems, uh, which one of our ethnographic uh, uh, comrade, uh, poet friend uh, calls as, uh, her name is Leah Zani, and she calls it field uh, field poems. So I, I feel, I call it an ethnographic surfeit in my life, because in my work, I feel like uh, there is an ethnographic field note I do, but then I also was writing poetry. And I felt like it was a nice preamble uh, into into each chapter, like the things that I had written. Uh, if there was an interview I had done, it also had kind of distilled itself in, in form of a poem. And I felt like it was a nice little uh, entry into that chapter. And my editors were very amenable to uh, in, in, in including uh, the ethnographic poems. So I kept them very short. I didn't use long poems at all. Uh, I favored writing short uh, poetry, and that's what I did. I included some of them, which I felt like were little pointers in the chapters. And um, for me, it's it's kind of uh, it's kind of showing the ethnographic surfeit that there is so many ways in which we can show these wounds because anthropology usually speaks for the underdogs. Anthropology us- usually speaks for uh, the marginalized, I've, and anthropology has such a huge heart for creative ethnography. So I felt like there was this little space for kind of showing the world that there is there is uh, an ethnographic surfeit of this kind that can that can be a little entryway into these different chapters. So I uh, included them, and they 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 are they're, they're of like different um, tempers, so to speak, and they have a different. Um, so sometimes it's a mother speaking and sometimes it's just a little bit on the history of Kashmir. And sometimes it's, uh, it's just, just not much. One of them goes like, uh, there was, there was no vote. It's only war. So it's kind of like also a comment onto what Kashmir is. So yeah, that's, that's why each chapter begins with a short poem. Um, would you like to read one perhaps? I'll have to find it. then. 
Okay, okay. Let me uh, have one in front of me right now. Uh, this is. Uh, oh, you, you you'll find it right now. Please go ahead. Please, sorry, Aaron. Yeah, I. Uh, so I, I. Okay, this is in honor of uh, Zuna, um, because she was the primary driving force uh, behind this work, and it's also dedicated to her. <clears throat> so the it, it it's it's the beginning of uh, the chapter one, the politics of mourning. And it starts as, you're always arriving in the night, at dawn, morning, quiet. During the day, sometimes a shadow, sometimes a voice, brushing against me. You're always arriving. Now the door stays open. I'm not afraid of the soldiers or mice. Now only you arrive. All fear is gone. Thank you, Arthur. Um... Uh, as we uh, come to the end of our discussion, Athur, I was wondering if you could share a bit with our listeners uh, what's the next project that you're thinking of? Uh, so the next project is I am uh, trying to wrap up this um, a poetry project, an ethnographic poetry project. It's called Field in Worse. So it's Field in Worse. So it's kind of like these short poems from the field, which draws uh, from my field work with APDP and post-APDP. And the other project that I am beginning to work on, that is going to be across LOC, hopefully uh, with both the governments being amenable to me going into each of the regions. Uh, it, it is kind of a project that's based on the Azad Kashmir side and on the Indian administered side. What I want to do is I want to uh, look at the perspectives that have been, uh, that, that were present initially and what is concretized in the last 72 years on the two sides of the LOC and kind of like bring them to comparison and look at how each of the region uh, individually and together look at the what could be the future for the region. So that's that's what I'm looking at currently. It's in the beginning stages. It's uh, very exploratory at the moment and very preliminary. Resisting Disappearance, Military Occupation and Women's Activism in Kashmir by Professor Atharzia, published by the University of Washington Press in 2019. Uh, thank you so much, Athar, for your generous time and uh, for uh, these really excellent, ex extensive uh, 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 discussions on the book, which I'm sure would have been a delight for all our listeners. Uh, and thank you for writing, again, such uh, an incredibly powerful, uh, riveting and brilliant book. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you so much. So this was my conversation with Professor Atharzia about her brilliant and powerful new book, Resisting Disappearance. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and learned uh, much from it. This is your host, Sher Ali Tareen, signing off from today's episode, with the hope that you will also join us next time for another fresh episode of your favorite podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. Until then, take care, stay well, and keep listening to New Books in Islamic Studies. <laughs>